Welcome to the iHemp Michigan podcast. iHemp Michigan is a member-based organization backing hemp farmers, seed cultivators, processors, manufacturers, and hemp businesses statewide. Our members are engaged in defining the path to success of industrial hemp from seed to sale and beyond. We are committed to empowering hemp farmers, fueling industry leaders, and educating consumers to ensure hemp flourishes in the Midwest. Our focus is influencing responsible and fair regulation, providing grower education, and enabling full access to the evolving marketplace. IHEMP Michigan advocates for wellness in people and the planet through hemp, and it begins with the farmer. This episode is brought to you by the Midwest IHEMP Expo. This is your opportunity to learn, connect, and plan for a successful 2020 harvest. IHEMP Michigan is hosting the Midwest IHEMP Expo and Conference at the Lansing Center, Lansing, Michigan, on January 10th through 11th of 2020. Everything you'll want to know about industrial hemp from seed to sale will be available to you under one roof. Two packed days of speakers, workshops, trade show, and networking. Check out MidwestIHempExpo.com today to learn more. That's MidwestIHempExpo.com. Now, on to our show. Welcome back to the IHEMP Michigan Podcast. This interview was recorded while U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, announced the establishment of the U.S. Domestic Hemp Production Program. As we study this 161-page document, there are some interesting challenges that will be discussed during this 60-day commenting period. Expect an interview soon to go over these challenges. I was in Detroit visiting Pure Michigan with my friend and hemp growing partner Jeff Dennings. We dropped off four super sacks of hemp to be processed and enjoyed a tour of the huge facilities. Michael and Pete of Pure Michigan have stepped up to help Michigan farmers with drying space and processing that is coming online soon at a very large scale. Let's get on to the interview. All right, this is Dave with IHEMP Michigan. We're here with Peter, Pete Conway, uh, Michael Golfetto, Jeff Dennings, and we're at Pure Michigan in yes. Detroit, Michigan proper. This is awesome. We're right in the uh, heart of Motown. We're talking about industrial hemp. So, um, Pete, we're going to start with you. Tell me, uh, what is Pure Michigan? Uh, Pier Michigan, and, and how did you get started? Pure Michigan is a uh, large-scale um, hemp extraction processing um, company. Um, our goal is to provide low-cost, um, high-potency, uh, high-quality uh, CBD products um, for the Michigan market. Uh, my background uh, comes from the medical side of THC processing. Um, I have been building extraction machines for about 10 years from now, uh, 10 years now, um, for various different clients, and um, I had um, some different ideas of how things should be run and how efficiently a machine should operate, and that's how we ended up um, in hemp processing. Okay. So, and when did you start Pure Michigan? Uh, Pure Michigan is a new company. Uh, we are uh, less than three months old. Oh wow! So mm -hmm. you just jumped in. Yep. Both feet. Yep. Okay. And you were your partner is Michael. Michael. Uh, yes. So, 
what, what's your role in all of this? Oh, I got them all in this mess. I uh, I known the other co-founder Leonard um, of Leonard Sarps for a while now, and we had been looking at doing some products with water soluble CBD technology. I had been working on. Unfortunately, with the state of the FDA regulations and the ambiguity surrounding how there are a lot of products, we kind of had to put that deal on hold. But uh, a couple months ago, I you know I came back to Lynn and told him that you know we're looking at a huge vacuum in terms of regional processors here, but a lot of farmers are not going to have their ability to bring the product to market. And you guys have a very large facility, a lot of understanding of the equipment that Pete was describing to me that would normally be used in this process, but more importantly, they actually consistently care about producing high quality products, especially at a time when we're in an industry where there's a lot of bad actors. Um, you know, that's one thing I had known about Lynn is that he really does care about not only producing a high quality product, but also about having his name go behind something that he can really stand behind. Um, and so I, you know, I approached Lynn and I had met Pete before that, I had kind of gone around and tried to vet several other extractors, but Pete was the only one who could deliver consistently good results on that end, on the medical side. And so I, you know, I introduced him, and Pete was already pretty far ahead of building these equipment systems that he was using. Um, and he's actually, in his process design, he's fairly more advanced than I think even a lot of larger pharmaceutical companies are at this point. So it was kind of just like a serendipitous thing where I was able to put those pieces of the puzzle together and say, hey, there's an opportunity here. Um, and there's gonna be a real need to work with these farmers, not just for this year, but also moving forward to create a quality supply chain for Michigan and deliver um, you know, quality products to consumers that were sourced and produced all in state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Jeff, uh, Jeff, uh, we were down in the warehouse area and saw some hemp hanging. Uh, we just went through this whole process. Uh, wh what do you think about what they have going on here? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting the to see it hang in a different way than than what we did was <laughs> uh, you know uh, give me some ideas to be a little bit smarter <laughs> next year as well. <laughs> and uh, you know, yeah, I definitely see some things that can improve on. Yeah, so. Um, Michael, why don't we start getting into the weeds here, so to speak, and talk <laughs> about uh, extraction. Either one of you guys, you have this chart here that talks about extraction. Can you explain this? What am I looking at here? And I'll, I can, maybe I'll do a little video too. I've had some people that. Sure. Don't and there's not a lot of good information out there, so I went ahead and you yeah. know, put that together. Yeah, if I could get a copy of this, yeah, be no awesome. I'll share it. So it'll be in the show notes. Extraction in this is really no different in a sense than the extraction technology that exists in a lot of other industries for producing purified compounds from medical or just traditional farmed agricultural products. The difference here is that in cannabis you tend to have a more rich amalgamation of high value compounds. A lot of them that we still don't really medically understand, um, but we just know that they are doing something based off the overwhelming uh, anecdotal evidence that consumers have consistently uh, given over the past couple of years. And so looking at that, there's a lot of different extraction techniques you can use. Um, each have their pros and cons, but at the end of the day, if you're trying to preserve a lot of these compounds during the extraction process and also 
provide a purified product, it really is going to come down to the process design and the people running it, like Pete here, having a good understanding for knowing exactly what they're trying to go after and also understanding how to curtail around the natural variance that can occur between farm to farm or even um, strain to strain on the same farm by the same farmer. Um, so, you know, one thing we're really big about here is not trying to say, hey, we're going to produce only CBD. We're going to try to actually almost assist in customer discovery and farmer discovery and recover as many of these compounds and produce a pure product and then network them with consumers in a way that helps consumers find what works for them. Um, and Pete here has a great understanding of really how to preserve the compounds and isolate them in a manner that's really efficient on the industrial level, not just a lot of the smaller scale ones that you even see larger companies kind of running with right now. So, um, you know, on my side, I had been really interested for years about the various medical applications, but with the lack of existing data, it becomes difficult to try to formulate any end, single end product um, to, and get it to a, any individual consumer. Um, so the best way I could look at it is instead of going at that, let's try to find a way to get the cost down to consumers and let them find what works. Um, and I think Pete and Lynn here were both really on board with that approach versus the you know more saturated one where you see just CBD isolate being put into a product. When we look at these plants, the, you know, the, they exist with a lot of different compounds naturally, and that for centuries has been what has worked for human beings. It really isn't until we get into the pharmaceutical era of modern society where we see the focus really shift towards single purified compounds and their efficacy. And when we're trying to recreate something that grows naturally, it's best just to try to preserve that natural state that has worked for people um, in the years past. So. That's really our emphasis here. Okay. So when we look at, you know, the, the industrial hemp plant and all these different genetics, is there, and, and I see on your list on your chart here, you're talking about, you know, terpenes, you know, 1.5% terpenes. There's, I understand that there's a big market in just capturing those terpenes yes. and offering those. Um, when we were hanging our hemp, <laughs> we had this, consultant, we won't go into detail about our consultant, but uh, um, he's a little bit crazy, right, Jeff? But uh, anyhow, um, he did a nice job of when we were hanging and drying, we had kind of wrapped all our plants in plastic to maintain some of those terpenes was the intent. Is that effective? It seemed like, you know, when they were bucking our plant, the guys that were, we had this mobile bucking service come out from uh, BC Hemp, it was really cool. And um, they said, oh man, this smells better than, uh, you know, some of the hemp, uh, you know, like when we were down in Nashville smoking, smoking some of those hemp uh, pre-rolls, they call them, some of them smelled and tasted like dirt. Yeah, you know? hey. But, yeah. yeah, hey, you know, but, you know, then others would have some really nice flavor, like you, what you would expect to taste. Yes, uh, so many uh, post-processes can affect um, the terpene count and the quality of the, the overall extract over that time. Um, how it's dried, how it's kept, um, how quickly it's taken down, when it's taken down, um, all those can affect um, all of those compounds basically. Terpenes are incredibly light. They evaporate um, at pretty low temperatures and um, so anything that you can do to um, 
preserve those, uh, drying under lower temperatures, um, not drying as quickly, um, while still maintaining an environment that is not going to grow mold or cause degradation of the product. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, uh, the answer is post-process uh, leading up to extraction uh, affects it heavily. Yeah, mm -hmm. so every, every step of the way makes a difference in the final product. Yeah, I mean, even if you took two genetically identified or identical plants and put them on a farm and you gave plant one one new set of nutrients and plant two another set of nutrients by the same farmer, you might still get a completely different profile, both in terms of your cannabinoids and your terpenes and some of the flavonoids that exist in there too. And so when you're talking about that wide of variance, from both the farming and processing standpoint, it is definitely important to start looking at these things moving forward and try to provide a platform for farmers to get a better understanding of what they're gonna go after in terms of the compounds they wanna retrieve and how can they get to there, both from planning to um, you know, the normal nutrient uh, cycle and how, when they are harvesting, how, when's the best time to harvest. And also to educate the legislature here so they can start making policies that are more amenable to these farmers being able to successfully recover and grow these crops. Excellent. So the, where do we find the right genetics? I mean, there's a lot of, you know, we hear all this in Colorado and Oregon, there's, I mean, there's ex experts around every corner. I mean, yeah, I know of a few different companies in Michigan that are setting up to do, you know, either feminized seed or clones. Is that something you guys want to talk about? Some of the, uh, yeah, so I had actually talked to a professor Wayne State who works in this area about this on several, you know, one thing he is saying is that with feminized seeds, you're still going to run a relatively high risk of having a male, even if it's like 1% of those turn out male, well, you know, it's one, per, like one or two males can ruin the whole farm. Yeah. And so, you know, when you're looking at that, um, it almost might be better to say, if I want to try to go after consistent genetics, even though it's more a little bit more labor intensive to go from clone, that's going to give you your best chance of success in terms of being able to reproduce something that's going to stay female and be consistent throughout that farm. Mm -hmm. When you're planting from seed, it's either going to take, I think he said, uh, like eight cycles of the plant and then one back cross cycle with two different plants that are being bred to be isogenetic. And then after you do that last back cross about nine generations later, you can get it to be what they consider isogenous, which allows you to get something as stable and accurate and reproducible from a plant standpoint, you know, to the best of their ability. That being said, there are certainly tools that he said you can use to genetically identify certain characteristics from clones in terms of what their genetic profiles and tendencies will be like. And with the introduction of some of the more recent um, discoveries like CRISPR and the genetic technologies, not only can you kind of enhance the selective breeding of these plants, but you can also really enhance the identification um, of each plant or strain and focus on ones that are gonna have the most likelihood of producing exactly what you're going after. So the CRISPR technology, is that, I, I'm gonna go down a different path. No, it's right fine, now. go for it. But, uh, yeah, aren't there like kids? These kids are setting up labs in their baseball. Oh, they call it biohacking. Yeah. Yeah, you know, to to mess with some. So, so we could hire a kid to help us. You could, but the interesting part, <laughs> and I didn't know this until I talked to him, is he says it's actually relatively easy to take a plant gene and insert it into a human. It's extremely oh, difficult whoa. to do the opposite, um, because That's he good. said 
the mouse. mechanism that works biologically speaking is a lot more finicky with plants and so there even if I was taking a plant to plant it's got a high likelihood of failure when you're going to insert a single gene or multiple genes throughout that versus they can take like something out of a plant and put it in you no problem um, hmm. which is it, yeah it is you think hey we're way more complex you know what's up but we're adaptable. Yeah. That's probably, you know, and so, well, the, the, when they found the CRISPR technology, I believe it was actually pulled out of enzymes or, um, that exist naturally in our human floral or flora, um, which is the natural microbes that live within us. And so that's maybe why that technology is more amenable to working in more complex organisms like us versus plants. Hmm. I'm sure they'll find something eventually, but for right now, the best thing we can really do with these tools is to to retool them towards screening and identification. I mean, hopefully we can get to a point where we can modify even plants that are already growing and existing in real time. But if we're looking at the near future, that's still gonna be best case scenario, several years off. Mm-hmm. So, which, it does, you know, it's not a big deal. I mean, they didn't even know about this technology five years ago, and now they've already got the first clinical treatments with it for curing diseases, not just treating them. So from mm-hmm. that standpoint, who knows? You know, there's a variable, uh, Pandora's box. Yeah. But, you know, as of now, with what we know, it's a lot more complex to do this in plants for some, as, as counterintuitive as that might seem. Um, but I, I think in the immediate term, if we can work with some of these research universities, at least start vetting the genetic profiles of the strains that will go into farms next year and, um, you know, for the years to come, I think that's still going to be an invaluable tool to kind of learn from the mistakes and fix a lot of the headaches that farmers this year really experienced. So you know, we're here and it's October 2019 and in a couple of months we're going to have, you know, this has been a research year for MDARD, so MDARD's going to release the data that all of us farmers provide, you know, with our grow this year and we'll have some ideas on which genetics performed well in Michigan. So that's going to give us an, an, a leg up on next year. Um, but nutrients, you're saying that nutrients play a major role? Oh yeah. Uh, you know, we had a couple farms we talked to that were using nutrients that were traditionally uh, used on corn um, and it was, you know, kind of catastrophic for their crop. They got, they had, unfortunately they had bad consulting on that end. Um, but even a minor difference in the nutrient schedules that are really curtailed around a single strain can have all a night and day difference in the end product. Now, when we when we got started, um, you know, I talked to you know, MSU Extension office, and you know, they said to amend your soil similar similar to was it what was it winter rye? No, or winter it, wheat. No, it said tomatoes on that report that came well, back. On, on the report that came back, it said tomatoes. But when when I spoke to um, MSU, it was winter wheat was what the target was. Yeah. And uh, so then we got the report, and it on the report, I, I think it listed tomatoes, but I don't know why, why but uh, we amended, Jeff went to a, uh, we went to some- Local fertilizer. Uh, elevator. Elevator, and, right. And, and amended <clears throat> the soil, and we never, we, we experimented with a little bit of phosphorus from one of my clients, you know, we put on some of the plants, but didn't notice any difference. But so are you saying that we need to 
add nutrients throughout the growing cycle? Yeah, and controlling the like the phosphorus and nitrogen ratios um, will also have a huge impact on that final product. Now, a lot of that is actually probably pretty well understood by people who have been traditionally doing this for, on the medical side. I think those are probably the best ones to consult with because at the end of the day, they're the ones who have the most experience in what that nutrient schedule looks like on each strain and how that affects the end product. Uh, feeding the correct nutrient um, um, to those plants can increase your, your, potent or your uh, yields from 30 to 50%. Do you also risk, um, you're going over that point three, going hot? Um, yes and no. Yeah. Um, again, that, that comes down to when they're being cropped. Um, plants tend to have less THC early on, and that THC develops um, as the plant gets older. Um, so people who are pushing those crops into the late weeks um, will have more of a tendency to test hot. Um, Okay. But, you know, the easy way to fix that, and it would really be big for farmers, is to just up the limit. I mean, 0.3% was what they put in the federal farm bill, but it seems like a bit of an arbitrary standard and one that's almost detrimental agriculturally. Because at the end of the day, even if you have 1% THC, it's not going to do much. Like, you know, like, I don't know what they're expecting. No value is recreational. Yeah, yeah. Like, you go try to sell anything less than like 15% right now, the, the Spencers are probably just turning away. So it's yeah. like, you know, it's like, well, if we're talking about 1%, you know, it's like, come on guys, you know. It, yeah. it, it, at the very least, it seems like a, even that seems like an arbitrary standard, but one that would have a big impact on making the farmers here much more successful. In, in, mm. in the processing um, of the, the hemp product, that, that THC can be mitigated. Yes. Um, so 0.3%, 1%, 5%, I think it's irrelevant. Because you can take it out during the process. Yes, yeah. we can both screen it out, but if you look here, we can also take starting compounds and differentiate them to non-psychoactive but higher value compounds. Like THC, for example, can be remediated into CBN. Right now, the process to do so are pretty rudimentary and they're not overly efficient, um, but it's got a positive opportunity cost given the value of CBN per kilogram and that um, that distillate versus something like CBD or THC even. So even if it's not efficient, it's definitely going to be um, worthwhile right now, especially if we can you know help farmers stay within the confines of the federal regulations during the processing. So what? Tell me about CBN. What what? What does that do? So CBN right now, what they're finding is it's a extremely effective sedative with very low um, side effects. So anytime you have people who are traditionally relying on things, like I think the most classic example would be like Ambien, for example, this might be a pretty natural alternative for them hmm. on that part. In fact, that's why some people who smoke CBN heavy medical products tend to feel fatigued or, you know, want to fall asleep sometimes it's, mm -hmm. and we never knew why we thought oh that's just you know when I use marijuana that's why but now we're kind of discovering well maybe it's because the strains that they were using had just a much higher CBN content okay makes you tired yeah, yeah. okay and then CBG what uh... there's I mean CBG is really interesting the the 
it's really more of a recent discovery. What they found is that it's kind of like a stem cell for these cannabinoids. And that from uh, end product production is probably one of its biggest values. The CBGA is actually the first cannabinoid that's produced in the plants. And as that plant matures, it differentiates into all your other compounds like THC or CBD or some of the lesser known ones right now like CBE or there's like a hundred of them. So, but mm -hmm. I think, you know, you guys get the gist on that end. The, the value to being able to work with that is once you can get CBG or CBGA heavy strains, you can really start and get that distillate, you can really start to make um, very accurate, refined um, cannabinoid end products. And so if we can work with farmers next year to really get CBG heavy strains um, and ones that predominantly express that and stay CBG rather than you know differentiating later to THC or CBD, I think there's going to be an opportunity to be more methodical on testing the medical value moving forward and identifying what cannabinoids work for whom, for what, and at what ratios. Mm -hmm. So the processing side to, to pull these compounds out, this is probably something a farmer should not try and go down this path, it sounds like. Uh, it'd, it'd be better it, off to... It can be a rabbit hole. Um, to get the, the processing equipment set up can be a, a, a fairly decent cost, and there's uh, inherent dangers that come along with it. Yes. Um, I mean, it's, it's like any other trade. Um, you have to have a certain amount of expertise in order to create um, a quality end product. Um, so uh, there would be a, quite a learning curve and uh, some potential hazards uh, involved. Um, that being said, me and Pete are both very MacGyverish at heart, <laughs> and we're all about you know uh, supporting people who want to learn and do it. Uh, we're definitely not telling anyone not to try it, especially mm -hmm. if they have a natural curiosity, and we want that to be fostered and for them to you know be able to explore that. But if you're relying on it for you know making income or getting the most value out of your crop, you definitely want to work with someone who's got the experience and the resources to not only extract it but maximize the efficiency of the extraction. Even on this side right now, there's a lot of bad actors in terms of they, you know, they try to make it seem like you can just put it in a machine, push a button, and or you'll get everything out. But the reality is someone like Pete here who has a good skill and understanding of not only knowing how to optimize extraction for one strains, but how to adapt on the fly to various products going in there allows him to probably get anywhere between 15 to 30% greater recovery on the compounds that you care about versus just someone using a stock machine that's been, you know, kind of marketed as a extract all or, you know, mm -hmm. here all for extraction. You just push a button, do this, you'll get everything out. And I, I think, you know, most people who do anything in life, a skill trade, realizes that it's just that, it's a skill. Yeah. And skills like don't generally come just come naturally. So you know, it's like it's like farm. You know, if I go plant, if I just go, everyone thought, hey, I just plant this, it'll grow like a weed, and mm -hmm. I'll get a yacht at the end of it. But you know, <laughs> it, it's it's a skill. So it, it just as farming is a skill, extraction is the, you know very much the same. Mm -hmm. Cool. So the Pete, you're, you have a firefighter background. Uh, first responder background. Okay. Um, my uh, worked for the Chelsea Proving Grounds um, in Chelsea, Michigan for FCA for about 10 years. Um, it's a 4,000 acre facility and we do um, limit handling, high speed durability testing. So being such a large facility, uh, we had to have the ability to respond to any kind of emergency, fire, 
um, accident, incident uh, that may arise on that facility. So I was an emergency responder and that did involve uh, fire suppression, uh, confined space, confined space rescue, um, hazardous materials, um, pretty much everything that you could think of under that uh, category. And, um, you know, it was, it was a, a great learning experience. Um, and all of those skills are applicable um, in this industry. Yeah, um, you, you guys are processing with butane. Yes. And yes. Isobutane. Iso, okay. What's that mean? Uh, isobutane is a, um, oh, I'll let Michael take this one. I'll probably do a better explanation. So. It, it's pretty similar to butane. It's, it's technically an isomer, right? Yeah, it's an it isomer. Is, of, isobutane, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's propane technically, but it's an isomer that um, has been changed uh, to chemically uh, resemble butane. So it's 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 um, a great solvent and it gives us all some of the pressures that we need to make the machines work effectively. So this is a combination of pressure and the solvent that mm -hmm. does the extraction magic. Yeah well the the pressure is how the machine runs so it needs a little bit of um, pressure to make things go around. Okay. If you were to take butane and just pour it out right now it's not going to stay liquid right? It's going to you know, evaporate, it wants to be a gas. So the reason you need these pressure vessels is to make it stay as a liquid. Oh. So my background is supercritical CO2, which is arguably the most complex extraction medium you can use. And if you really don't know what you're doing, then you're going to mess it up. I don't care how nice a machine you have. Is that the efficacy of extraction is really based off pressure because the closer together the molecules are, that changes the affinity for the stuff they're extracting. So your temperature and pressure will basically decrease or increase the density of that liquid medium, that solvent you're using for extraction. And the conditions that you're running it at will um, it control how far apart these molecules are. If you get it in a target range that's optimal for the compounds that you're extracting, you can selectively extract the compounds you want while reducing the extraction of some of the things like the chlorophylls or your uh, fats that you generally don't want in that end product. Mm -hmm. um, supercritical CO2 does have the ability to almost act like a scalpel in that sense, but when we're talking about all these compounds, you, what you really want is something that can initially get all of them and not just selectively pull out a couple of them, um, even though you can get use that to get to a more precise end product that is selectively isolating one or the other. But, you know, looking at this from the downstream potential, there's certainly other aspects of this that are going to be, um, uh, you know, being a dumpster process that can work the same as supercritical CO2 does, where you can get it to a refined product that is either an isolate or it has a very high purity distillate. Um, one thing that people do is they try to throw the fear factor of butane is dangerous, you wouldn't want to extract anything with something you like butane that you would ingest, but the reality is, is that if you're using CO2, if you're using butane, or using ethanol as your primary extraction, you're almost always exclusively going through something like ethanol in a second extraction step where those initial solvents outside of ethanol are gonna be stripped off anyways. Um, so, you know, like you look at Pete's lab results and he can use something like butane and get to something that's absolutely got no trace solvents on it. And at the end of the day, you're still gonna have to get that anyways. Mm -hmm. So where people might say CO2 is cleaner, 
both CO2 and butane or whatever you use in extraction medium is still going to have to pass those lab tests. Um, mm -hmm. And as long as you have someone who knows what they're doing um, and you can produce a pure product that will hold up to those, then it really doesn't matter. It really comes down to an industrial level, what is more efficient and what's more advantageous for getting more of your full body or full spectrum um, extracts that give consumers the best potential to experience what may or may not work for them that science just really hasn't you know kind of identified or caught up with yet mm -hmm. so do you guys uh, you're using the butane i know you have to have like blast walls in your process yes. right? um class one class one division one yeah. okay. uh, not necessarily blast walls but the, the work area um, is built uh, with the understanding that we're going to be working with explosive uh, compounds and the ventilation is set up and such and uh, safety measures so we can mitigate those issues. Yeah, you know, we luckily we run a clean ship and we we don't anticipate those issues, but we're definitely big on planning for them anyways. Yeah. It's, it's not something you just want to say, hey, I hope this doesn't happen. You kind of have to plan for the worst in case, you know, and you know, even if there's a 1% chance, you have to prepare. Well, and, 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 you know, the idea is for this business to scale and grow. So, yes. you know, you guys will probably have someone else that you'll be overseeing ultimately, I imagine, as you build your business. What and you talked about uh, you're building out to pharmaceutical pharmaceutical grade. Yes, um, I forget the exact class system, but we were fortunate to come across a supplier who was very knowledgeable, and he had set up some of these um, module clean rooms in very large pharmaceutical companies, and he was able to walk us through and get us supplies that allow us to build up the space. To I want to say it was class 100. Don't quote me in the class of like pharmaceutical grades because I think it's like class 1000 is lower. Class 100 is somehow like a little bit higher. And then on, if you're going even less regulated, you're just adhering to your C1, D1 or C1, D2 standards. But for us, we want to try to get to the pharmaceutical grade processing facility because we understand that, you know, there's an intrinsic value to being able to meticulously control those conditions and make sure we're producing the purest end product as possible. So I see a label here, and it says uh, Farmer John's Peppermint CBD. Oh, so that was for the white label. I had to give people an example of yeah. how we're going to work with it. Well, yeah, so I want to talk about the white label. Yes. So uh, talk about that, because uh, I can see the Dennings family farm. <laughs> you, know, you know, Jeff uh, used to pass himself off as Amish and sell uh, jellies and stuff, right? Is that true, Jeff? Am I making things up? Kind of. <laughs> so our angle, I, I did guess. grow a beard. <laughs> Our angle, I guess, on that side is if you look at Michigan, one of the things that make it unique is the thriving nature of the craft industry. You look at craft beers, for example, mm -hmm. despite intrinsic consolidation existing for uh, you know a couple decades with Bud or Budweiser, like where you can go out to the Midwest and that's all they serve. Here, in the face of that, we've had not just successful but a very much large, thriving craft industry centered around those type of products. And hops, for all things said and done, is a cousin of cannabis so you know it's not a very large leap to think that this industry could have a very good existing model for that moving forward um, but you know with the white label or anything else our emphasis is if the FDA allows us to get into food we want to be able to really serve the platform to connect farmers with consumers and to also allow consumers to find out what makes that farmers potential products um, you know work for them better than anybody else's and by doing that and creating a feedback loop, we can not only help consumers find products that work for them at a lower cost initially, and then that way when they go have to buy larger amounts, you know, safely say that they're able to get this value out of this, but also let farmers know here in Michigan, 
what's going to keep them competitive from a strained growth standpoint against the rest of the country, like Kentucky, who's you know been doing this for a couple of years now, or Colorado, who's already has kind of a leg up from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're looking at other states where they've got you know people who've been doing this for several years, it's going to be hard to come to the table as a state and be competitive on that end. It's pretty much, you know, it's a, it's a gap that you're brewing and have to work hard to catch up to. So it's a much better angle to say, how do we, you know, get ahead of the curve in terms of customer identification and how do we keep Michigan farmers producing some of these much more higher valuable but lesser known compounds right now in the future? And how do we do that so that they know that demand is going to be there, not just blindly planning, hoping that maybe a CBL heavy strain is going to be the next big thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to make sure that by the time before they plant, they know that demand's there moving forward. Um, and I think the best way to do that is if we're growing it in here in Michigan, is just to directly connect them as you know as quickly as possible to the consumers, and also you know help the consumers discover which farms and which farmers they um, they kind of get the stuff that they really prefer from. Mm-hmm. So that was you know that was our angle, and I think that's going to be the way we kind of pursue this moving forward. Um, you know, customer discovery is never an easy thing, but if we can, we live in an era of like social media and everything else. So there are these tools we can really put at our disposal that will make this process a lot quicker and easier um, than, you know, it traditionally used to be like a decade ago. Yeah, well, it's, it's still majorly different. Yeah. Difficult with, you know, uh, both Google and Facebook having a, uh, you know, censorship on any yeah. advertising that have products. That's a that's a big issue that we need to overcome. Yeah, that's that's true. But I mean, if we're looking, hopefully here, if the FDA allows in food, we can grow stuff to rely on you know s- similar venues to where craft beer and uh, restaurants are because mm-hmm. this stuff can be relatively in, uh, easily integrated into traditional culinary products. Um, and so I think that's going to really be a much more effective means of tracking demand, um, especially when someone can just go on Yelp and go, hey, I love Dave's farm, you know, uh, uh-huh. the Dave from IHEMP, he's got, you know, that great hemp strain, I love that, <laughs> you know, being those type of tools, I think that's going to be harder for them to censor, but also we can, you know, on our end, when we're analyzing it and then helping distribute it locally, we can really have a pretty frictionless uh, means of actually tracking that without too many outside actors trying to hinder that uh, feedback loop. Yeah, I can see you. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah. So looking at, I wanted to get back to this label. I mean, going across the top of it here, you have CBD, THC, CBN, CBC, CBV, CBG, and CBL. (laughs) So, and it's, and it has percentages listed going across the top. So me as a farmer, when I bring my product to you and I say, Hey, turn this into oil for me, you're, you're going to provide me these numbers back with, with my end product. They've already, they already really do that on the medical side. Um, you know, maybe that varies a little bit between places that only really were equipped to focus on testing for just your THC or CBD content. But now the standards that they use to test this in the same way they would test for your THC percentage are um, pretty widely available. So now that they have the standards, it sh- it's fairly easy for them to ex- you know, expand those services they used to almost exclusively focus on CBD and THC and let the farmers know, hey, here's all the other lesser cannabinoids, and not only that, but your terpenes and so many other compounds. So I'm still taking the floor, Dave, thing. Yeah, you're good. So I, I have a hand cream that I rub on my hands, and what you're saying is that for that to be effective, and it, I thought I heard you say this earlier, 
yeah. is it, it could have a different percentage and that's what would might work on my hands yes. or it might not. And that way I can go back to the same, I know you have Farmer John's here, but you said, hey, you know, Dave's yeah, eye hump. <laughs> and I, uh, so I can look for those same numbers and yes. possibly get the same results time after time instead of just walking into the store and trying to guess which yes, one I do. Exactly. Because I'll tell you, I have a cream that I rub on my hands and it works for the, my arthritis, but I also tried some drops that you put under your tongue. And yeah. Those do nothing for so my hands whatsoever. Here's the thing. If you look at um, where you're delivering the compounds, the problem with oil-based tinctures is they tend to have a low bioavailability, meaning that if I take one milliliter or something, I'm generally going to get only 3% of the CBD that's in there. And the reason for that is because your bloodstream, the system that has to travel through to get to the parts of your body that will metabolize it and turn it into an active molecule, is mostly water. So for all intents and purposes, it's like taking vinaigrette and putting it in water and shaking it up. It's going to form almost like a lava lamp style globules. Those won't effectively get into your system. Um, now, when you're talking about topical applications, your epidermis is actually meant to have oil ducts for your hair in there. So that's why the oil can kind of seep through and get into the sites where the inflammation and pain is occurring on spot because it has these natural um, built pathways for that oil-based compound to really travel through. Um, so that's why you can really see a difference on that end. So the tincture just happens to be peppermint, like your label here. Yes. Would it hurt taking those drops and actually putting them on my hands and rubbing them in? I don't think it'd hurt to try. I don't know if it's gonna work. It should. Well, but um, there are so on the drug delivery side. Peppermint a topical though. I'm mean, yeah, I can yeah. be used. Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, there, when you're talking about what you're trying to affect, there is a big difference on the formulation for topicals in terms of efficacy and ingestibles. The biggest one being is that when I fully ingest something, it's going to have to go through uh, my liver and it's going to basically have enzymes in there that are going to bioconvert it into water-soluble versions of these compounds that will then be able to travel to my brain and affect the receptors that way. A topical is more direct delivery, um, so it will go to the receptors where the pain is occurring physically in your hands and affect those without needing to be bioconverted. Sublingual has an advantage on the fact that if it's going underneath your tongue, it can go almost directly into your bloodstream. But if it's an oil, it's still not going to really be able to bypass your liver that effectively and it's going to be really just filtered out. So, you know, the downside to a lot of the sub uh, the ingestibles that I think maybe someone who's tried, you know, medical brownies or edibles has, you know, experience with this is that it takes a long time to set in, and, you know, anywhere from like uh, 20 minutes minimum to an average of about 40 minutes. And if, depending on how it's prepared, it can have a lot of um, variance in its efficacy. It's a little bit more intuitive to understand from the psychoactive THC side, but much more nuanced on the CBD side. There are some things you can do to mitigate that. Um, if you want, if you're looking for something that's ingestible or you know a sublingual, you can go with something that's water soluble, and that will can get your bioavailability up to like anywhere over 20% versus your 3%. But um, you know, even certain things like using it in combination with high fat foods, they're finding can still get you you know in the 10% range. So it's a pretty natural fit to start looking at these and maybe if I don't need an instant um, set, you know, instantaneously working uh, compound or 
you know, dish and I'm fine with it taking 40 minutes to get into me, just pair it with a, you know, a traditional, I like bacon, but, um, you know, anything with my <laughs> fat content. I was like going to say bacon. <laughs> oh, hey. I love CBD bacon. You bacon? I'm all about that. <laughs> so it was my understanding that our endocannabinoid system is just, it's just set up to, you know, the CBD, it just puts us in equilibrium, equal balance. And that, you know, ingesting a routine amount of CBD will just keep you in balance that it's not so much an immediate effect that you would experience on the CBD, you know, those like those tinctures that you're just setting yourself up for success, giving your body the best. So at the broadest level, that might be true, but in the reality, what they're finding is that our endocannabinoid system actually indirectly can influence other systems around it too. And so, you know, one thing they found is that a little bit of THC combined with, you know, CBD, even not enough to get you high, will actually have a much higher success um, of getting people anti-inflammatory because it's not just one um, receptor that's really being targeted or even both receptors exclusively by one molecule, but a combination of multiple molecules affecting both your CB1 and your CB2 receptors. So, um, you know, looking at that, CBD can also be effective almost as like a Narcan for the anxiety people get when they consume a lot of THC products and the fact that it's able to bind to the receptors competitively in a means, I have to think of it like Charles Barkley boxing out. It can like keep the THC away from the receptor, which is the basketball um, net right here. <laughs> and so by doing that, it kind of just forces the THC to be uh, either metabolized or stored in the fat tissue around it. So that's why when we get into, you know, get away from a single compound and start to look at the overall effects of combining multiple compounds, you can get uh, distinctly different results. And the thing that really is frustrating on that end is it, it varies not only based off the dosage you take. So maybe the same thing with multiple compounds will work the same way for you and me, but I need a slightly higher dosage in order to get that and you need a much lower dosage. It also is dependent on our individual genetics. You know, even if like um, your mother or your sister or your brother or your father took, you know, um, the same thing as you, it might take a completely different combination of cannabinoids to get to that end result you guys are both trying to achieve. Um, and then it really also is based off of um, the amount of cannabinoids in combination with more ancillary things like your terpenes that can have a completely different effect as well. So there's this really complex dance that goes on to try to target that end result. And because it's user specific at both dosage level, cannabinoid concentration and other, you know, like terpenes or flavonoid concentration in regards to each other and each individual user, it's apologize. It's almost impossible to really make a single product that's going to work for everybody across the board, or even a large enough consumer basis that it's going to have you know everyone be able to just use this one purified CBD compound and make sure that you know it's going to work for five percent of the population. So let's you know, I want to back up just a little bit. We talked about your processing, and you're going to take um, you'll know, go down to a distillate oil. You know the farmer. It's going to get his split as you process it. What's a farmer? What 
what kind of products should a farmer look at making from distillate oil? Ooh, and this is one thing I kind of like to go to an Asian market, and farmers already have a variety of products that they can integrate it into. Um, okay. You know, everything from honey to jams to anything else. Um, it, I think it's really going to be deciding what's probably easier for them to integrate. I think there's going to be a large amount of consumers right now that are going to want to try diversity and gravitate towards that more so over a standard product you find in Walmart. And that's great for the farmers. I mean, if we can get them to put it into something they're already making. So if they're already growing green beans, yeah, you put a little CBD oil in with the green beans when you can them? We or? put in, uh, yeah, some olive oil, or maybe we get it into a butter that we can sell with the farmer's beans um, ah, kind of stuff. You know, Jesus. Yeah. Dairy. Ooh, yeah. CBD cheese does make me hungry now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it you know, with as long as the fat-based compound where you're not relying too much on emulsions or you know, the water-soluble stuff that we do, there's going to be a pretty natural integration. I think the only consideration I would have is we'll try to stay away from heat-intensive processes where you might potentially degrade some of that, uh, those cannabinoids when you're adding them. So like okay. on the drying side, you know, some of the farmers are trying to use corn dryers, but they were too hot and they could actually oxidize or damage a compound. So if you mm -hmm. don't want to do anything that would involve blending it with a product that would probably go over like 104 uh, Fahrenheit, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just make sure. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, then that would probably be the, really the starting point of what you can't do. And from there, you could really work into both all the possibilities. What's going to be easier for you to get to market or pair with somebody who can bring it to market. Okay. Um, if, if farmers are looking for something that they want to kind of get to a consumer, the other consideration is what's the consumer's demands? Are they looking for something that's instantaneous? Are they looking for something where it can set it in a couple minutes and be taken a couple times a day? Or maybe it's more something like a vitamin, you know, where if I just have a you know, CBD infused butter or spread that's just put on my toast once or twice a day, I'm fine with that. Um, mm -hmm. And that's really going to come down to is it something because, you know, again, these cannabinoids can actively work or like more passively work so there's effects where they can be taken every day in lower dosage much like a vitamin and have long-term benefits that occur due to gradual bioaccumulation and taking it over time and there's the ones that are more instantaneous like pain relief where someone's looking to get a product that can really be effective in the next couple minutes or next half an hour and last for you know the next couple hours and try to be served as an alternative to standard pharmaceuticals. Hmm. Excellent. All right. Well, so we've we talked about plant genetics, you know, males and females and nutrients, and we've talked about processing. We've talked about the final product. Is there anything we haven't covered? I'm sure, there's a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah. Plethora. So, y you guys are gonna come play with us at the uh, Midwest IHEC oh, yeah. Expo. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're gonna. Sit, we're probably gonna. We'll be there. I think. Well, if we can, we'll get Robert out there. But I think we definitely want to be involved, and we also want to. Try to work with you guys at IHAMP. By the way, for the record, IHAMP has been an invaluable tool this year. If they weren't around, none of these farmers would even have a way of working with processors or getting their product to the market. So this is an unshameless plug on my part, but uh, <laughs> thank you again to Dave uh, yeah. for that. I, I didn't have white hair before all this started. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, you did it. Literally, the past couple of weeks. I, yeah. I, I believe you. I, I, I've had white hair for a long time. So. But <laughs> I think looking at what IHEM's done, it's created a good platform for educating and a feedback loop for farmers to be able to talk with each other and figure out where their headaches were this year. It's been a, That way we can also work with the legislature and say, hey, across the board, this policy, the 14-day harvesting policy, for example, 
won't allow the farmers here to stay competitive um, right. for a lot of reasons. Or, you know, look at the need for maybe having access to better drying space or even subsidies to get some of these infrastructure like drying space locally where the farms are growing so that they can get, um, you know, just cheap, safe space that's also secure. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, uh, some type of way to allow them to connect without directly putting themselves at risk um, by locally saying, hey, I'm in this region without putting my address up. Because, like, one thing I think a lot of farmers went through is a lot of people robbed them this year thinking that it was, Mm -hmm. you know, marijuana. Mm-hmm. And you know we don't want that to happen. At the same time, we want to be able to have farmers network and connect with each other and other processors, even if there are competition, uh, <laughs> uh, or you know other other resources and tools that allow them to be successful. And also work with the state to craft laws that are sensible and are also going to benefit Michigan farmers overall. Mm-hmm. And I think you know what you have going is a great platform and a great way to grow off that. Like one thing we want to do is work with a couple companies here to try to set up some indoor grows over the winter that can serve as a template for, you know, teaching them how far apart to plant the plants so they can get automated equipment in there. And not mm-hmm. everyone's sitting there, you know, cutting it down by hand, like it's yeah. medieval times. Um, mm-hmm. You know, simple things like that, or the nutrient schedule, uh, showing them, hey, if you treat the same strain, grow in the same conditions with X nutrient or Y nutrient blend, this is the effect. So they can mm-hmm. see that in real time and try to take a lot of the guesswork out of it. You know, mm-hmm. get into a more scientific and industrialized process a little bit quicker than the other states are going. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, what you've already got going, you have a great network of a lot of these farmers and they seem to trust you, which is great because, especially in this industry, uh, trust goes a long yeah. way. Yeah, it's been a great community. And yeah, yeah there's a. Uh, there are some people who don't have the purest of intentions. No, uh, and there, you know, that's why I like about all these guys is they're in it for the long term. And it wasn't just uh, how do we maximize profits thing. It really was a first. How do we make sure it's a successful business, but also almost balance that with how do we make sure that the people working with are successful this year moving forward? You know, mm-hmm. they're in it to create a quality and diverse supply chain, and to really see that Michigan is at the forefront of this industry. And so being able to work with you guys and other people involved that have that same mentality versus how do I just you know get the money now while the money's good, um, mm-hmm. that's, that's what we're, we're looking at. Um, being able to work and talk with the farmers at the very least and say, hey, what are the headaches and problems you have? How can we, if we can't solve them, how can we try to find other people who are working on you know trying to mitigate these issues and connect you with the reputable ones? And then how can we actually make it make sense for everybody's bottom line so that the economics behind it are making sense so that you know the farmers can still you know make a good income but do it through making sure that they're cutting the cost of the things that they don't necessarily need to do and that they can learn from the mistakes they made this year and not repeat them expensively next year right yeah so yeah excellent well i appreciate all the work you guys are doing i'm looking forward to seeing this thing get all full of hemp this whole building we've got lots of <laughs> yes. space to bring a lot in yeah. In a process a bunch. You're setting up, uh, ultimately you'll be able to process a thousand pounds an hour, you said. Yes. That and is then, a goal. And then yeah. using that. That's exciting. Using that as a platform next year to get into mobile extraction um, is really, I mean, if we can get. Extra- mobile extraction. If we can get an extraction and drying unit and get people trained on these systems now, that way mm-hmm. next year we can get them out to the farms. I think that's where it's going to really cut a lot of costs and headaches. You know, just mm-hmm. you guys having to get your plants transported here 
it's no small feat, you know. So trying to find ways to cut out a lot of those headaches and work with farmers um, and do it in a transparent manner where they can see it happening in real time, I think is going to go a long way towards, you know, creating a uh, industry standard of both transparency and reliability in terms of what makes sense for the farmers. That's exciting. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Thank um, you. I look forward to hearing more from you. I'm sure we'll be back. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. We'll get you on the uh, I Have Michigan podcast in the future. Thank you, Dave. Definitely Thanks. looking forward to it. Thanks, Dave. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the I Have Michigan podcast. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion, email Dave at ihempmichigan.com. Special thanks to Eclectic Sales and Creative Marketing, LLC, for their audio editing. I Hemp Michigan is committed to the whole plant success of industrial hemp, and it begins with the farmer. Get involved. Start by visiting iHempMichigan.com. The Midwest iHemp Expo. This is your opportunity to learn, connect, and plan for a successful 2020 harvest. iHemp Michigan is hosting the Midwest iHemp Expo and Conference at the Lansing Center, Lansing, Michigan, on January 10th through 11th of 2020. Everything you'll want to know about industrial hemp from seed to sale will be available to you under one roof. Two packed days of speakers, workshops, trade show, and networking. Check out MidwestIHempExpo.com today to learn more. That's MidwestIHempExpo.com. Through fires, floods, and freezing weather, we will always stand with the American farmers.